famous since your birth I'm silent what it was Till they told me it's a girl And everybody got I know how to raise you right Teach you how to read You match that toy spell names alphabet And how to be polite Wild, a Fangraphs baseball podcast brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I'm Meg Relly of Fangraphs, and I am joined today by special guest co-host Mike Petriello of MLB.com. Mike, how are you? I'm doing great, and thank you for calling me a special guest. That fills me with pride and joy. <laughs> all of our guest co-hosts in Ben's absence are special guests because they are all doing me a special favor and helping me fill these episodes so our listeners still have something to listen to. So thank you for joining me. Mike, is it possible that you have not been on Effectively Wild to talk about the Nerdcast before? You know, I think I was on this show once like five years ago when it was I Ben and Jeff. That. Maybe, but yeah, yeah, no, definitely not about the Nerdcast or, or not with you, for sure. Well, I am glad that we're able to rectify that um, that oversight. It seems uh, shocking that that would be true because I feel like Ben and I end up discussing your work in mostly favorable terms, although not exclusively, if we're being completely candid, <laughs> fairly often. And so your your presence has been felt on Effectively Wild, even if you have not been here to either gloat or defend yourself. So I'm glad that we can get that sorted. We're going to talk about some hot, hot news that will not be uh, news at all by the time our listeners get this. It's the perfect way to engage with with a uh, playoff content where we have to talk about it and then uh, we can either look really smart or really stupid 24 hours later. Uh, we'll get to the Dodgers decision to start Corey Knable as an opener in the back half of the show. But to start, what I thought we would do is talk about the, the Nerdcast, the alternate broadcast that you do on ESPN with Jason Benetti and Eduardo Perez, because I will not make you speak ill of any other broadcasters, but it is very nice to have content that feels like it is geared to me personally. And I imagine that a lot of our listeners feel the same way. And so I, I'd like to talk about the Nerdcast. And I guess the first question I have for you, Mike, is how did this come to be? How did this uh, delightful addition to our baseball viewing experience come to come to pass? Well, first, thank you uh, for the fine, the kind words, and I'm glad you've enjoyed <laughs> it. And you know, what's funny is I sort of had a thought that maybe that's what you would ask. And I was thinking to myself, I don't know. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> like, what happened from my point of view was, so in the middle of 2018, and we'd started working closely with this point with people at ESPN because they had interest in putting StatCast numbers on the air and wanted to know how to do that responsibly and all. Yeah. And then like a couple of weeks before the All-Star game in 2018, we heard from ESPN and they said, hey, we're going to do a StatCast version of the All-Star, of the Home Run Derby on ESPN2, come do it. That's where it started for me, where it got... You know, somebody had an idea in the first place. I was it ESPN's idea? Was it a marketer's idea? Did they sell something they had to fulfill? I honestly have no idea, and I feel <laughs> like I should figure that out at some point. But that's where it started. We did that home run derby, and home run derbies are so difficult to do because yeah. it's fake baseball. Like they're fun. We had Bill Nye on, but you know, it's it's like broadcasting in a hurricane kind right. of. And it was fun. And I went home and I didn't think anything of it. And I kind of thought that was that. And then about two weeks before the end of that season, we found out they wanted us to do a StatCast version of the wildcard game, National League. And if you remember how that season ended, there were five teams 
going down to the final week who were possibly yeah. going to be it. And then the Cardinals fell apart. And then there was a tiebreaker game between the Brewers and the Cubs and a tiebreaker game between the Dodgers and the Rockies, which let me tell you, made preparation super fun and super cool. <laughs> <laughs> um, and we did that. And that first one was kind of like a test in some sense of, hey, is this a good idea? Like, will right. this work? Should we do this? And we were fortunate because it's in Wrigley Field and the game was great and went extra innings and it was fun. And, you know, we've kind of been doing it somewhat semi-regularly uh, since then. And when you were coming up with, when you were starting to prepare for the the first game broadcast, right, that wild card game, what was your sort of stated understanding of what your audience was going to be? Because I think one of the things that makes, not just for the Nerdcast, but for folks who are trying to clearly communicate sort of sabermetric concepts to a broad audience, it can be hard to know what level to set for yourself, right? Because you don't want to alienate people who might have some curiosity about advanced stats but aren't super fluent in them, but you also don't want to dumb it down too much for the people who are already conversant in that. And so I wonder what what did you what were you conceiving of as sort of your average viewer for that first broadcast? Yeah, this is the part I lose sleep over sometimes because like I will answer your question about the first one, but it's it's been a moving target over the years. Sure. As you know, quote unquote regular broadcasts become a little more advanced and you want to set yourself apart and have a reason for existing. And the first one, it was a little hard for us to get too too nerdy, really, just because, you know, I, we were in a hotel in Chicago wondering where we'd be the next day and which teams were playing. And that sort of right. limits like how much depth you can get into. But we definitely had a, a conversation about it. I very much remember um, Phil Orleans, who I will butcher his title because I don't remember it, but he's basically the the senior production guy of all, you know, ESPN Live Baseball broadcasts. And we were talking about this and, you know, he's super in the weeds on the numbers and he gets it all and loves it all. And he's like, well, remember, you know, it's still an entertainment program right. and you're not just focusing on the 1% of people who read baseball prospectus and fan religiously, which is like totally fair because we've never yeah. we've never wanted to make it like an algebra class. But then what's funny is, and as you yourself have noted, I tend to pay too much attention to social media while I'm doing live television. <laughs> it just stresses me out, Mike, because I need there to be a place where we can unplug <laughs> and not be looking yeah. at the hell site. And I thought maybe one day a broadcast would give me that refuge. And then you're on there well, <laughs> referencing tweets and all kinds of stuff. Lots of broadcasts are like that. but I know. No, but, but what's funny is this just happened like this year. We did a game. Right after the home run derby, it was Red Sox Yankees on July 18th or whatever, and I thought it was a good show, just in the sense of we we did a good baseball show, but I didn't think it was a great Statcast show. And not to make excuses, it was you know a short week after the derby, sure. and I had been under the weather, not with that, and I just we did not you know have all the Statcast stuff we usually would. And I saw these two tweets come in, like literally back to back, from random people who I don't know. And one of them kind of did the typical, like, what is this nerd garbage? I don't where is I don't like these numbers. Where's my RBIs? And then the very next tweet was, I thought this was the StatCast show. Where's all the numbers? Because <laughs> <laughs> I think there's a certain segment of people who think the StatCast show should look like the screen at like a horse track, like the, the OTB, you know, where sure. you've got like the L box with stats. Like that's probably what betting shows will look like. In the yeah. future, we haven't done that. And so that's like, that is the line I always try to walk between. How do we do enough to make it cool and different, but not so much that it's weird? And I always feel like that's that's the worry I have is what is that sweet spot? So as you're you're preparing for these games, and you know, I imagine that the process has refined itself some over time as you've gotten 
as you've gotten more comfortable with sort of finding that balance and also just being in the booth, what does your preparation look like for a typical StatCast game? I have a big Google Doc, which is really true. And on that big Google Doc, I go, you know, I list out every player who is likely to be in the game, you know, so I'll end up with like 50 names. Obviously, I'm not going to have something interesting on every single one of those guys, sure. you know, uh, but, you know, you'll focus on the big names and certainly go deep on the starting pitchers. And for a regular season game, I'll start doing that like 10 days in advance. Obviously, it's different for the, the postseason. Uh, and it's funny because my wife is like, well, you, you know, tons about baseball. Like, what do you need to look up? And I'm like, well, I can't just say Mike Trout is good. You know, like right. I've got to be able to come up with something interesting and, you know, show people information they haven't seen before. And, you know, it's not just me, obviously, like Jason has his own ideas and Eduardo's coming at it from the former player's point of view. And I think the best things we do sometimes where he'll be like, I saw this and I'll be like, cool, I can back that up with numbers and really explain it. Like when it works like that, it's perfect. And then obviously, you know, our producers, we've had Andy Jacobson and now Ben Ward are super receptive to it. But yeah, a lot of it is me going through and just going to the normal sites, you know, Savant, Fangraphs, all of it, coming up with anything I find interesting, and then uh, just inundating the graphics people with endless leaderboards and edit requests. <laughs> so like on our last show, it was the wildcard game, but it wasn't 100% clear who was going to be it until right. a couple of days before. So certainly like the day of, I was sending emails to like, you know, Connor Joyce and Jordan Klein and the other people who are doing all the, the cool images. Like, I know it's like eight hours till the game, but here's 10 more things I'd like you to bring. Right. <laughs> so it is very much a team effort. And to kind of go back to how this started, the, the one thing I have a great deal of respect for ESPN for is they could have treated this like the ugly duckling, but they made it possible for it to be successful by putting the right people there. Like, Jason is a real full-time play-by-play person who, right. in a lot of people's opinions, mine included, is one of the best in baseball. Yeah. And Eduardo obviously has had decades in baseball with his own career and his father and all of it. And they gave us like, you know, high quality producers. Like our producer, Andy, uh, we just lost him because he moved up to the regular main broadcast, you know? Ah. And so they put, and then the graphics people have been great and all of it they put together like this high quality team forget me like they just made it important and put the right people in place because otherwise it, it the show like this wouldn't have worked and i have a great deal of debt for that happening you mentioned the team and i would wholeheartedly agree with your assessment of your fellow broadcasters i'm curious you know set aside the the nerd part of it i imagine that the broadcasting part of it is in intimidating enough right that is its own project um, and a thing that people have to learn how to do what advice did you get from those guys early on in terms of not how to convey information, but how to say anything at all? <laughs> I don't know that I did. I think no. <laughs> I think for that first home run derby, I met Jason and Eduardo for the first time either the day of or the night before. I can't remember. Mm -hmm. And to this day, I have no idea if they really even knew who I was. I'm like, I knew Jason. It was his first year, I think, with the White Sox. And I, I knew him just because I knew he was the White Sox guy, but I didn't know him very well. And same with Eduardo. I just knew him from his baseball life. I don't, I don't really know if either one of them uh, knew me or had any idea what this thing was supposed to be. And what I'm fortunate enough to have is in 2016, we tried to do a version of this, a much different version of this at MLB.com. It was called mm -hmm. MLB+. Plus. And, I remember that. Yeah. And it was it was different because it was only online and it was blacked out in the home markets and all this. And we, we didn't go to the ballparks like we, we do now when we're allowed to. It was all from our studio in Chelsea. And in retrospect, probably too soon to do a StatCast show in the second yeah. year of StatCast. Sure. <laughs> but 
that was really good experience for me just to learn how to prepare for a show and how to, you know, speak clearly and not, you know, drop F-bombs in the middle of a show and all those kinds of things you don't want to do. And, you know, it's hard to be on a set with Jason and Eduardo for three hours and not have fun. Like it's almost impossible to hang out with those guys and not have a blast. Well, and I think that that's one of the things that, and I know you've remarked on this in in sort of watching other broadcasts and appreciating the ones that really stand out as as going smoothly and being engaging, that the the appreciation for the game itself is really important to the the viewer at home having a good time, right? And I imagine that it's when you when you've kind of crossed the Rubicon of saying like our our baseline stat here is going to be OPS plus or WRC plus, right? We're we're looking at the game from that perspective that you don't have to do a lot of convincing that the game is is really good as it is now and that we don't have to harken back to a prior era of it. But I wonder as you're you know, getting your feet under you for any given broadcast, do you think consciously about sort of injecting fun and levity into it? Or is that just a, a natural byproduct of the folks who you're working with and the approach that you're taking to the game? I do think a lot of it is is who you're with. You know, like, as I said, with Jason and Eduardo, you can't not have fun. Right. I feel like there are probably some other groups of people where you might be with and say, well, this is less fun because they're not really enjoying being with each other. But I also think very specifically to me, the fact that I'm doing this, like at any, if I could have told myself at any point in my life, this would be true, I would have probably laughed at myself. So imagine being able to be in a ballpark and calling these games and not enjoying it. You know, it's yeah. like an insane thing for me to think. And it's really, you know, I think having fun and having some enjoyment it works in service of the stats too, because right. you don't want to just do a stat show. And some of the shows I like, they don't use stats at all. Like the other day, they had the show where it was Adam Amin and AJ Pruszynski and Adam Wainwright. And yeah. they were not using advanced stats really, but they were having a blast yeah. and they were having good conversation and some really good analysis. Do I care that they didn't show WRC Plus? Like, no, that, that, right. those stats are great when they help you tell a story that you couldn't have told, you know, in years past, right? If you want to, or if you want to use them to explain why a team is doing something like, hey, why are they shifting? You know, why is the guy hitting, right. who's hitting 240 uh, hitting cleanup and the guy who's hitting 280 hitting eighth, right? Like it helps you explain the silly things that teams do. But, you know, if you're not enjoying it, if you're not having fun, then it doesn't matter how intelligent it is. You mentioned that 2016 was probably a little too early to do a StatCast show, even online, just because of how new StatCast was as a resource for people and how early you guys were in sort of your development of different metrics. What have you been able to sort of phase in? And is there anything that you have phased out as the platform has become more robust and the metrics that you're able to share are sort of more widely known by your audience? It's really funny how people still think route efficiency is a thing <laughs> when that was never like a leaderboard. It was never available. It was on a couple of videos like five years ago. What I think we would have done differently. So I wasn't there on, on day one. I didn't right. come on full time. I wrote there a little bit in 2015 after I left the wonderful fangraphs.com. Yeah. And I, I came on full time in early 2016 and Tom Tango a couple months after that. And I think Darren Willman, who did Baseball Savant before moving on to the Rangers, was a couple months before me. But I think what happened was everyone was so excited about it that it was just like, this is great. We're going to throw everything out there and it's going to be super cool. And maybe underestimated how much work was going to have to be put into context and explaining 
And at least in the, the first year, for sure, like data quality was an issue a little bit. Sure. So a lot of it has gone into, and this is in great deal Tom's work because he's obviously an expert in all this. Like, what's the right context for this? You know, what does the data show? What are we trying to make sure it's telling the right story or we're not trying to tell the wrong story with it? And I think what we've gotten pretty decent at over the years, uh, not naming things. We're terrible at naming things. Naming <laughs> metrics is just the worst thing in the world. It's hard for everyone if it makes you feel better. I yeah. think this is part of why I always admire science fiction writers because they just have to come up with na- like nouns. They got to come up with nouns for stuff and it can sound so silly yeah. so fast. And like acronyms, then you got to right. wonder, is an acronym, like, does it say something else? Does it actually stand for NFL? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. But no, a lot of it's like, okay, well, we have the stat. We think it's cool. We think the leaderboard makes sense. Can we put it up on Baseball Savant in a way that's visually appealing and interesting? Like, does it make a good leaderboard? Could you put this yeah. on on television? And I think that's been a decent part of the success is, you know, color coding a lot of the leaderboards and making pretty pictures and, and nice graphics out of it. What do you view as sort of the next uh, phase of the Nerdcast? What does the next iteration of it look like? I have absolutely no idea. It's <laughs> it's really like I think about that sometimes. I mean, part of it is just because at this point in baseball history, it's like an uncertain offseason is ahead of us, you know, right. for a couple of reasons. Yep. I know that so next year ESPN is starting a new contract with MLB, and that's been pretty wildly reported, so I'm not breaking any news there. And there are still the the rights to do second screens should they want to. And I, I hope we get a chance to, they could also do other kinds of second screens. I don't know. Maybe they'll do a, a kid's show like the football one or a, yeah. a betting. like, what do I know? We also don't know who's doing the main show right now. You know, so right. I, that could be an issue if like one of our guys does that. And again, I'm not speculating. I legitimately know nothing about anything, but you know, who knows what happens. Right. So it's going to be just interesting to see like, what does the baseball broadcasting landscape look like in six months? Did the season start on time? who's available for what show. And then part of it is like, if the main show, because I said they, they have our producer now, or, or right. at least they did this last year, if, if not going forward, I'm not sure. It's really, really good. He knows all my tricks, you know? So it's like, if those shows are becoming, you know, more advanced in ways that I think they are, how far do we push it to try to, to stand apart? You know, because you go back to like right. 2018, the first one that we did, there was a lot of stuff we did that main shows wouldn't do. And now it's like, oh, yeah, everybody's showing exit velocity and pitch sequencing and the infield spray chart. Like, that's it's almost normal now, right? So how do you keep pushing it forward? And the answer is, I don't know. I, I hope we get the chance to do something cool. Yeah, I was going to ask about that, the dynamic that exists there between between your broadcast and the sort of national main screen broadcast, because I think you're right that, that broadcasters have gotten more comfortable, or at least their graphics people have gotten more comfortable showing advanced stats on the screen. And, you know, as that progresses, I imagine that the differentiation will be more challenging. But what do you think the right balance of that stuff is on a, a feature broadcast that might, you know, might have a big part of the Nerdcast audience in it, right? We have to watch something when you guys aren't broadcasting, but also like has my grandpa in it who still doesn't know what my job is. <laughs> <laughs> well, I feel like we should get your grandpa on here to uh, explain him what you do. I think that would be great. <laughs> Some of it is, it's how it's presented. Like I mentioned right. the, the infield spray chart thing, right? Where it's like the five different pie slices and it shows where does the guy hit the ball. That's pretty accessible, I think. It's just like, hey, here's where the guy hits the ball. It sort of explains why the infielders are standing there. You can air that without even having to talk about it if you don't want to, because it just tells the story. Uh, Some of the stuff is accessible too, I think. Like, you don't have to love or care exit velocity, but 
how hard did that guy hit the ball? Pretty accessible too, I think. You get a little weird and deep if you want to, if we want to get into like expected stats and all that. And we barely use that on our show, you know, so I can't imagine that's going to show up on the main show. Yeah. But I, I don't know. In some sense, I think we're almost like a, a, a testing area to say, hey, did this work? Was it cool? Well, great. Now we've got a proof of concept to uh, send it out to a bunch of other shows. I wonder then if you're if you're staying away from say expected stats, is there anything else that is deemed even for the nerd broadcast too nerdy? Is there anything where you're like I can't explain? Like I don't want to talk too much about predictive versus descriptive stats on this. So right, yeah, there's that. I haven't done a lot with like seam shifted wake yet. We did like a brief thing when Dustin May before he got hurt, just like a yeah. little video to ex- just explain what it was but i'm not going up there saying well this guy has a deviation of 15 minutes on the clock hand because like right it, some of it's too much you know and i there's always going to be a danger of getting into that because that stuff's going to get more and more advanced but you know the goal is first and foremost to tell the story of the game and the players in a game in the most entertaining way you can and if there's a particular guy where that's that kind of thing really helps tell his story then great but i never feel like you want to force it in just to say you did it Right. Yeah. Well, when you figure out the right way to describe seam shifted wake to an external audience, will you let me know? Because I still don't think I can do it. I don't have the I don't have an elevator pitch on that that I can do quickly. Yeah, I've gotten it down to like 35 seconds. And that's still too long. (laughs) Still too long. (laughs) I'm curious, are there any and you don't have to speak ill of any of the teams that you have broadcasted about. But I, I wonder if there have been any points as you guys have assembled your schedule around this and and started preparing where you're you see a particular team is sort of on the horizon and you think, yes, I'm going to be able to tell an especially good story about that team. Early in the season, we got Dodgers Padres. And this was before the Padres fell apart. And yeah. this was the series where I think it was on the Friday night, maybe Mookie Betts ended the game with the diving catch against Tommy Pham in the outfield there. And we were so excited to do that game. And it was, it lived up to it. That game ended up going, you know, five hours or whatever, which is not great, not ideal, but you know, it was interesting and compelling baseball. And so that was great. This probably applies only to me and not to 90% of the, of the baseball audience. The only thing I don't like necessarily is when you get the same teams over and over, you know? Sure. So it's like, do I know a lot about the Yankees and the Red Sox? Yes, I do. Would I enjoy doing an Orioles-Marlins game at a certain point? Like, yeah, great. Like, right. new people, new stories. You mean to tell me that Orioles Marlins isn't like a isn't a big broadcasting priority for the for the mouse? Yeah, no, know. just not not seeing too much of that, unfortunately. I guess this is sort of a related question, but um, and and I'm going to use this to transition into a bit of news that came across the transom just before we started recording. But I think that the general perception of managers in today's game is that you know there are guys who are are particularly savvy, but the the distribution of of sort of willingness to to engage in tactical tomfoolery has it's just like everyone's talent has sort of clustered together now, right? We don't have a ton of guys who fall into the camp of like really being old school managers. But I wonder for for your purposes, is it better to have a savvy tactician or is it actually nice to have a guy who falters every now and again so that you have something to talk about there? <laughs> well, yeah, I guess that's what are you looking for? Are you looking to win baseball games or are you looking to have something interesting on a broadcast, you know, so I would much rather have a guy where you can question, why did you hit there? Or why did you bring in this pinch hitter or, you know, or this pitcher or whatever? Because yeah, you want to have something fascinating to talk about. And 
that can be positive or negative. Like I'm happy to talk about, hey, that was a really great decision. I liked that. Or why did you do this move that I hated and it worked out poorly? And because we're always a results-based industry, now I look good and I can talk about it. You know, I'm, I'm here for content because let me tell you, three hours, if you're yeah. lucky, is a long time to talk, even when yeah. it's with people you like. Sure. And we were fortunate for this wildcard game. We were in Fenway. It was the first time in two years all three of us had been in the same place because we'd been doing these things remotely. And that yeah. just made talking so much easier. Yeah. Okay. Well, now I'm gonna put the hot, hot news on hold to ask. Yeah. What was what was remote broadcasting like for you? Weird. Uh, yeah. It was weird for me because you know Jason and Eduardo do this regularly enough that they've got setups in their homes. So Jason was in his place in Chicago, and Eduardo's in Miami. I don't. Right. Like I do right. not have a home set up here. So I'm in Brooklyn, and I had to drive up to the main ESPN campus in Bristol which is like a two and a half hour drive, which is not a big deal to do that, you know, every once in a while. But that, it was interesting because each time I did it up until recently, the the setup was different, like just based on what was open that day. So one oh, time I was in the, you know, super swank studio that looks like an airport hangar all by myself. I'm like, this is great. And then one time I was in essentially a green room with like some stools and stuff. And it was still great, but a different kind of great. And I did find one thing appealing about that, which was, for me, just having like all this space to myself, I can set up as many screens and tablets and monitors as I want to and have just like a ton of information. Whereas if you're in a booth and especially where we were in Fenway, it was postage size. You can't really do that, you know, so that made it a little yeah. harder. But just in the sense of like not talking over one another, which is always yeah. an issue when you're not in the same place or being able to like poke Jason in the ribs and say, hey, I've got something interesting on that guy. Like that makes all the difference, you know, in addition to spending human time with people you like. Right, right. If you could go back in time and tell yourself before that first wildcard game, one one thing to do differently, what what would your years, your many years of broadcasting experience yield for you there, Mike? For that one game? Oh, I don't, I don't want to say like we did it perfectly because I know that we didn't, but it went so well. And I'm a big believer in uh, like the butterfly effect. If you change one thing, maybe you screw up everything else in your life. So I was happy with that. Let's just keep that one the way it was. Okay. I, I'm I'm content with that. Well, I hope that the next iteration of, of Major League Baseball on, uh, on ESPN involves more nerd casts, not fewer, because we are fans of the nerd casts around here. While I have you, we're going to talk some some news. We will talk about this uh, Corey Knable decision in a second, but the Cardinals are going to be in search of a new manager. They have fired Mike Schiltz. That news came across today on a day with playoff baseball, which is unusual. Normally, these things get held to uh, a travel day. And the the Cardinals process cited philosophical differences. I think that there was a hope that they would be able to move in perhaps a more analytically progressive direction. I think that Schultz's sort of record on that is is perhaps mixed. But I'm curious, we don't know how to talk about Schultz in particular, although if you have particular thoughts about the Cardinals and what they should do here, I'd be curious to hear them. I'm more I'm curious, like, what do you conceive of as the modern role of the manager well apparently it's not winning 17 games in a row because that was deemed insufficient to keep his employment I guess. but sufficient to move their playoff odds dramatically lest any of us forget <laughs> yes i'm fascinated to see what comes out of this story i feel like there's got to be something we don't know about yeah it could be as innocuous as you know the timing of it's weird to me in the sense not that just that they made the playoffs right but there is a playoff game tonight. Right. And you, you don't generally, you know, it's like what, 
four hours from now that that game starts. You don't generally get to make this kind of news on a day where there's playoff games. And I saw someone report that they had to go and ask for special permission to do it, which indicated that timing was of the essence. Now, whether that prefaces some bad news coming out later, I certainly hope not. I have no idea. But I also wonder if there was somebody on their staff who was about to get another job, you know, the Padres or somewhere, and they deeply didn't want to lose him. Is that enough to fire the guy you have? I don't know. But that was the first thing that I thought, you know, as far as the manager goes, I feel like we just don't see enough of what they do. Like you look at pitching moves, lineups, pinch hitters, whatever, that's the visible stuff. I can't imagine there's that much difference between managers on that kind of stuff. Like, yes, I think Craig Council is a very good you know, manager of his staff and somebody at the other end might not be. But I just feel like so much of it is keeping these guys from killing each other over six months, you know, yeah. keeping morale up. Uh, in some cases, maybe, you know, having a hands-on impact with, hey, I'm going to help you improve, you know, your hitting or your pitching or, you know, depending on what kind of skill these guys have. I, I do think we forget how many of these players are like, 24 year olds going through a lot of the life stuff that we all went through when we were 24 and we just we can never see that so it's just so hard to to judge or really know especially when it's like why didn't you bring in the lefty there well the lefty wasn't available i can't tell you why and i'm not going to tell you but that impacts my decisions yeah i it, it is an area where i think particularly for people who like to have data to churn through to help them better understand both decisions and sort of approach i find managers very frustrating as a concept because so much of what they do that is important is stuff that we will never see and also when moments like this come up where uh, a manager finds himself out of a job and we're contemplating replacements it's an area where i feel like i really don't have a great sense of what the current roster of names should be right we we hear all of the same names year over year and that's frustrating for a number of reasons not the least of which is that a lot of those people tend to to look similar and so it does not foster the kind of diversity that we might aspire to but also i wonder if some of it is just that you don't like i don't know who's like the best coach in round rock right now i don't know i don't know the answer to that question <laughs> yeah i don't know how any of us could you know like yeah. with the cardinals maybe you know, maybe they'll promote Stubby Clap or somebody. Like, I don't know. How, how could I yeah. possibly know? The only thing I, I would say with managers is I tend to value some kind of managerial experience. It doesn't have to be at the major league level, right? Sure. But if you run a minor league team or a college team or or just something, I, I don't generally like the very first time you're running a team to be at the major league level. It does seem like it would be very challenging for the reasons you cited. It's like you have these, these young men who also are sort of being counterbalanced by experienced veterans who have a particular way of doing things. And it just seems like balancing personalities is difficult for the most experienced of managers. And to have someone completely fresh in that role does seem like it might lend itself to challenge. Although, you know, we have we have savants everywhere. So it's not like it, it can't work out, but it just seems like it would be harder to count on it. Well, we'll wait with bated breath to see who is going to manage in St. Louis. We have St. Louis. We have New York. We have San Diego. I'm sure we will have other vacancies as the offseason progresses. So now we should talk about the Dodgers, who will be playing the Giants in just a couple of hours. When you're all listening to this, they will have played them. So congratulations to the team that won for advancing (laughs) to the NLCS. I can't believe you hit that ball that way, guy. What a uh, what a ball you hit. What a pitch you threw. Congratulations. 
But uh, the Dodgers made a little bit of news before we started recording. It actually delayed us starting because they they decided to uh, start Corey Knebel as an opener against the Giants. You all know how it went, but we don't. So, Mike, what were your first thoughts when you saw this? Well, I assume that we can record two versions of this. And right, then based sure, yeah. how the game goes, you'll just pick one to edit in or edit without. Cause Choose your own adventure, Effectively Wild. Exactly right. So great slash terrible job, Dave slash Gabe, however that would best work out. Um, I was surprised. And I think it's interesting because if you think about the different starting pitchers the Dodgers have, I could not imagine them doing this in front of Max Scherzer or Clayton Kershaw. Or probably Walker Bueller, but you know, maybe. And I'm not sure what that means necessarily. I don't know if that means they don't view, you know, Urias with such respect. And obviously he's not as accomplished as those guys, but he is like an all-star level starter. Or if they view him as a guy who's maybe got more experience coming out of the bullpen than guys like that do. Because we've certainly seen him in the playoffs do it before. And I have to imagine this is something that he is like amenable to. And you'd think, well, of course, like how could it not be? But then I think about, you know, Davey Garcia and Jay Happ and that whole debacle with the Yankees a couple years ago where Jay Happ really did not want to do that. So yeah. I have to think he's into it. And then the question kind of becomes, you know, is this a good idea slash are you galaxy or braining a winner take all game? Like, yeah. should should you just start the great guy you have? Because usually when you do an opener, you are, you know, protect you're one of two things really. You are trying to screw with the opposing lineup, which is what I think is happening here. Yep. Or you're trying to protect a starter who has a weakness in some way, which I don't really think is true for Urias, who doesn't have huge platoon splits and doesn't right. have huge third time splits. So I guess a lot of this is you look at the Giants roster and aside from like Crawford and Posey, uh, they have a lot of moving pieces and it's mind games to screw with it. So I'm fine with it. I think I saw that, you know, I didn't read the whole thing yet, but I know you were talking about Ben Clemens writing about it. I think Ben is into it. Yes. And I think analytically it makes sense. And I think with Urias having experience coming out of the bullpen, it makes sense. None of that matters. If this goes poorly, they will wear this forever. You know, that's just the way these decisions go. Yeah, I think Ben's conclusion, uh, well, I know that this was Ben's conclusion because I edited and read his piece, but um, it is one that I agree with was that, you know, from a from a strategy perspective, particularly with how Gabe Kapler and the Giants like to position their hitters and platoon and all of the, the matchup games that they play, this sort of heads some of his substitutions off at the pass and forces him into a potentially less advantageous lineup construction and and, you know we should say like these are these are marginal these are tiny marginal bits of a win that you're grabbing at which makes them make a good deal of sense you would think in a in a winner take all game where it's like well this is if you're gonna do it i guess it's now i i was surprised by the reaction that some folks had to to say that Urias would be potentially sort of thrown off his game by this. And I, I think your point about how often he has come in out of the bullpen makes me worry about that a, a good deal less. I mean, he was, I think, fine and serviceable in his game two start. He wasn't his usual sterling self, but I don't imagine that this is the sort of thing that would cause a repeat of a game two performance, which again was just fine, but not, you know, spectacular. Because he's done this before, right? He Yes, in the, in the playoffs, he's had quite a bit of experience with it. And when you look at the game on the ninth, which I guess was what, game two when he started? Yeah. Uh, they loaded up the top of the lineup with 
Darren Ruff, Chris Bryant, Slater, Posey, Flores with five righties right. at yep. the top of the lineup. The Dodgers just put out their lineup, so I'm hoping to like drag out this sentence long enough that the Giants will do that too, so we can look <laughs> at it in real time. Uh, but I don't imagine they're going to be starting five righties at the top of the lineup again. No, I, I would expect not. When Ben wrote about this for us, he, he projected Crawford, Bryant, potentially Yastrzemski, Posey, Ruff, Flores, Longoria, and then Donovan Solano at the bottom with Tommy Lastella sort of re-aggravated or aggra- re-aggravated? Did he have the Achilles injury earlier? I think I, so. I don't remember if it was Achilles or Hammy earlier, but he he is a little dinged up. And so in all likelihood is not going to be available um, to start, but would be available to pinch hit later. Uh, so they still have that to play around with. But I suspect that they will try to put some some lefties up top and see see how that goes but who knows maybe um maybe Kapler will surprise us all it is funny I think that in years past we would have looked at this and been like those dastardly Dodgers with their analytics but you can't exactly look at the way that the Giants have gone about their season and say that they're not analytics <laughs> so I will be really curious to see what their counter move is to this because it's not like they won't have one well you know you're right the whole Estella thing does throw a wrench into it where it's right. like can he play at all right is he available only to hit and if so like are you saving him for i don't know kenley jansen in the ninth or is it better to try to get that out of the way in the top and like you know i guess not not the top because they're the home team but in the first inning that it just makes everything so fascinating like i love it because you get to ask all these questions now you get to think through all of these different things and i'm sort of leaning you know with with ben's outcome here where you know it makes sense and, you know, you get not that Arias needs help, I think, avoiding the top of the lineup when he gets no. to the third time. But, you know, maybe you get to see him finish off the game this way, you know, if things go well. Maybe if, right. you know, Canable gets through five batters, that helps Arias stick around later. I don't think it's going to make a huge difference unless Canable gets blown up and then people will only talk about that and literally nothing else. Right, which is so interesting because, and I don't fault people for this necessarily. Like, we like a narrative, and I like starters who start games and finish them. We see it so rarely. But it is it is interesting to think about why we react to these things the way we do, because if they had gone sort of a more traditional path, right, Urias starts like he normally would, and Knebel comes out of the bullpen, and let's say, and here we are, we are entertaining one potential adventure that this podcast could go on based on results that will happen a few hours from now or several hours in the past, depending on how you're engaging with the pod. And let's say like Knebel comes in, uh, in relief as he normally would, and he gives up four runs. Do we feel differently about those four runs because they came in the seventh inning than if they come in the first? That's the way it was always done, damn it. Well, and I, I don't think that the consider the sort of aesthetic consideration around this stuff is irrelevant, right? I know you don't think that either. I'm not suggesting that you do. But if your preference is that a guy start and then, you know, you see how long he can go and bring uh, a reliever in when the, the command goes or his velo's down or whatever, like that's a defensible preference. But it is interesting to think about why we react to these things the way we do. Do we think it's bad strategy or do we just not like the way it looks? Which, again, that's fine, but we should be clear about why we're disliking the thing, I think. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, I think you get into the same questions with the shift, right? Where people, I I don't like watching that. And it's like, totally fine. Who am I to tell you that you should or shouldn't? I think for a situation like this, I get into semantics a little bit. Like, if it's going to be Knable ahead of Urias, and you get those two guys getting through the first seven innings. Do I care which order they're in? You know, not terribly much. If starting a reliever means it's a bullpen game and you have a new pitcher every five right. batters, then yeah, that actually makes me want to watch the game a lot less, you know? Yeah. And 
I know that's not the plan, obviously. You certainly don't no. hope that's not what's going to happen here. But I do think you kind of forget about, you know, splitting the hair like that, where it's like, oh, they're starting with a reliever. This is just going to be an endless thing of relievers. And that, that would make a difference for me. Right. It would be a very different experience of game five if we thought that we were going with Logan Webb and Julio Urias, and we were going with Logan Webb and a parade of Dodgers relievers that tastes a little different by the end of it. Do you want to say any nice words about Logan Webb? <laughs> Very much so. Um, yeah, tell tell because uh, we didn't get a chance on this pod to like dive into his start all that much just because of the the sequencing of episodes. Aaron and I talked about it a little bit, I think. But what do you got on Logan Webb? What's your Logan Webb scouting report, Mike? Well, I like that he's. Well, let's go back to aesthetics for a second, right? I like that he's sort of going against the established pitching grain of the last mm-hmm. few years because we've definitely learned that nothing we do in baseball is one size fits all. I don't need. Uh, Billy Hamilton trying to pound the ball in the air, right? It just that's not going to work for him. And there has been a couple of guys like Webb. I think slightly differently. Corbin Burns uh, is another one of those guys. Uh, Jonathan Loizaga with the Yankees, where it's like, hey, throwing four seamers high doesn't necessarily work for me because even though I can throw hard, uh, I just it's straight and it's going to get hit. And I know that's the thing you're supposed to do is work vertically. And my four seamer is just not very good. So. I'm going to go back to the sinker, which everybody's like, oh, the sinker's dead. And it is if you're trying to get ground balls. But when you have these guys who can use the sinker and the slider, like mirroring each other horizontally, and I get it, we did not invent the sinker slider guy in 2021. That's been an archetype forever, but it had fallen out of favor. And so I really, I like that you have these guys finding success in a way that is not the prevailing pitching movement of the last couple of years because it's it's fun to watch him you know it's fun to watch him in a way that's different than it's fun to watch you know Scherzer Verlander those kind of guys I think that the Giants Giants are one of the better give you a lot of looks teams if you're into that sort of thing on the pitching side right and I might just be thinking of Logan Webb and, and Rogers here but they give you a lot of different a lot of different sorts of dudes in a way that I find pleasing well, I mean, just start with Tyler Rogers and yeah. Johnny Cueto, and that's like 20 different looks right there. Yeah. Do you think that you would have been confused enough about uh, Rogers' twin brother to ask, why aren't you in uniform and <laughs> in the bullpen right now? Did you see this delightful bit yeah. of, of news from San Francisco? So here's the thing. I saw the story, and I, I like to think I follow baseball pretty closely. If either one of them had sat down next to me on the bus yesterday, I don't think I would have said, oh, hey, you're one of the Rogerses. Like I, Rogers I? Rogers yeah, They're not that distinctive looking, you know? Like I don't I don't honestly think I would have known the difference. But I do love the idea of Kapler trying to get around the three banner minimum by having yeah. one Rogers and then bring in the other Rogers in the same uniform. I think that could be fun. I'd be down with that. I have been an advocate for at least two years that for one game, Hunter Renfro and Mike Trout should swap places (laughs) and really test whether or not we can tell because I think they are both thumb-like enough that it would take take a couple innings before we're like, wait a minute, that's not right. (laughs) Not not that Mike Trout uh, at his peak was not a fantastic defender, but if he started unleashing throws like Renfro did, I'd have questions. Well, it's interesting that you say that because I, I, I consider that scenario, Mike, because one has to, you know, really see it through when you're committed to a bit. And I think that it would depend a good deal on when your impression of both Renfro and Trout's defense had sort of solidified because Renfro took this sort of leap forward. He'd always had a good arm, but he had been sort of eh. 
and then had a couple of years where all of the metrics liked him very much, and now they're sort of more mixed on him again. But I think that if your impression of him had been formed sort of when he had taken a step forward, you'd be like, well, that's clearly not Mike Trout because that guy has an arm. But if it wasn't, I wonder if you'd be allowed to persist in the delusion for a little bit longer. Well, perhaps, but yeah, you're right. Are we talking about right now Mike Trout where he hasn't been seen in six months, which is sad and it makes me sad and I just hope he comes back. I know we're not talking about Hunter Renfrew anymore. I just want Mike Trout to play in lots. Right. Yeah. I will say that I miss Mike Trout, but I also will say that it is a testament to how many very good, very dynamic players are in the majors right now that I have not missed him as much as I thought I would. Uh, no. There have been other guys to fill the void. I agree. Um, it is sad to think that at some point we'll talk about Mike Trout the way we talked about Albert Pujols for a bunch of years. But <sighs> listen, if you if you can't get excited about Soto and Wander Franco and right. Vlad and Tatis and all these guys, um, what are we doing here? Why are you watching? I can tell you my six-year-old son is obsessed with baseball. And he gets super excited when he sees those guys he knows. Like he knows Tatis and he knows yeah. Lindor. And that is great. That is exactly what we need. Yeah. Who do you have winning this game five? No, let me phrase that a different way. I'm going to give you your choose your own adventure option so that at the end of it, you sound smart no matter what. Are you ready? I thought you were going to ask me who did win game five. No, no, I'm not, I'm not going to make you do that. What has to happen for Los Angeles to emerge victorious this evening? And then what needs to happen for San Francisco to advance? Okay, so for the Dodgers, and obviously much easier said than actually accomplished, don't chase that web slider out of the zone. Yeah. He's not gonna he's not gonna beat you in the zone. You know, the sinker is obviously very good and he's a he's a good pitcher, but he's not the kind of guy who's just gonna like dominate you in the strike zone. He needs you to pound that sinker into the ground or chase that slider. And if you can do that, and it's not easy to do that, then I think the lineup will be in pretty good shape. And for the other side, I think you need to make them pay for the opener strategy. You know, if you can, I feel like, you know, I'm obviously an analytical guy and I'm not usually the one that goes into emotions and gut feel, but I also feel like there's a lot riding on Knable starting this. And if you can hit him, that does feel like it takes a lot of air out of the tires. Like, oh God, why did we do this? Our dude won 20 games. We could have just started him. But otherwise I can't give you a difference. These games have won an equal 109 games if you count the playoffs. And they were 10-9 against each other in the regular season. Yeah. And I believe, I can't remember which side was ahead, the run differential was 80-78 to 78 in the regular yeah. season. How could you be more tied than this? Yeah, if I recall, the Dodgers had San Francisco by two runs. But yeah, it's it's um, it was a remarkably balanced uh, series between them and a remarkably balanced season between them. And the only thing that I regret is that we we had to get this matchup out of the way in the in the division series, not in the championship series. It's just the way that the cookie crumbles, unfortunately. Well, hey, Mike, I know that you have to like go be a parent. We will we will allow you to retreat to your parental obligations. But before we do that, do you have anything that you would like to plug or promote on on Effectively Wild? Well, yes, we are done with uh, StatCast broadcast for this season, but I will be writing at MLB.com, and we do a podcast as well called Ballpark Dimensions. It's the one we just finished up that's not even published yet, as we had Royals outfielder Michael A. Taylor on to talk about. Yeah, he's a super nice guy, and obviously uh, played for Dusty Baker and won a World Series with the Nationals and faced a lot of the guys that you'll see tonight. Uh, So you can find that at all of your various podcast outlets and um, constantly on Twitter to Meg's (laughs) great scorn and dismay at Mike underscore Petriello. 
Well, you know, I just want people to have unplugged time because um, Twitter is terrifying and the rest of the world is nice. So that's that's all it is. It's just concern for a friend, really. Yeah. You know what? We can unplug after the World Series is over. <laughs> <laughs> An unplug we shout. Well, uh, you should definitely check out all of Mike's good work that he just mentioned at MLB.com and the podcast. And I promise that we will not wait five years between appearances next time. I greatly hope that's true. Thank you, Mike. Thanks for coming. That'll do it for today. You can support Effectively Wild on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. The following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some small monthly amount to help keep the podcast going, keep us ad-free, and get access to a few special perks. Lucas, Claude Dion, Klaus Herman, Janet Green, and Savon Silverswartz. Thanks so much. Speaking of perks, this Sunday, October 17th, during Game 2 of the NLCS, we'll host the first of our two postseason live streams for Patreon supporters who have pledged $10 a month or more. Ben has assured me that as long as Sloan's sleep schedule cooperates, he'll pop by for a bit, and we'll have other pals of the show on hand as well. If you'd like to join us and aren't currently a supporter or are a supporter but not for $10 a month or more, don't worry. There's still time to sign up or up your monthly support. I'll share details on how to access the live stream in the next couple of days. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash effectively wild, and you can rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and other podcast platforms. Keep your questions and comments for us coming via email at podcast.fangrass.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you're a supporter. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance. I'll be back next week with new guest co-hosts and new episodes. Until then, enjoy whichever adventure you choose. No